0: Just remain on our feet, if you don't mind, for a few moments more. When God says to you or to us, "Be still," as He does say to His people in the Psalms, when He says to you or to us, "Be still," what might be He be saying to you? "Be still and stop fretting. Stop worrying." No need to be anxious. He who clothes the lilies of the field will take care of you in his own best way. When he says, be still to you, is it stop your arguments, stop your protests, stop your excuses. Be quiet. Stop talking and listen. For We have sung... Scriptural words concerning God's awesomeness, his power, and the way in which that rightly instills in us feelings of awe and wonder. And surely two of the great temptations that always beset us is to just pull God down from that highest place of all, or... To lift ourselves up. Oh God, I'm better than that. I'm okay. I don't need your grace quite as much as you think I do. But let's just keep those twin truths in mind. God's awesome greatness and power. And our need of nothing but, nothing beyond, free mercy and grace. As we now sit to confess our sins before God. The words of the confession that I invite you to share with me. Um, it's quite a brief one, and so I'd like to take it fairly slowly and thoughtfully. So I think you can see all of the words on the screen, so I'll invite you first of all just to look at what we'll be saying together. There may well be things, thoughts, words and actions that we either done or fail to do in recent days, that we need to to confess before God. But are there not also attitudes and dispositions, sometimes deep-rooted and long-standing, reaching far back in time to when perhaps we were much younger, that we also need to be open to God about? And to invite his cleansing and forgiveness. So we say together, God of mercy, we acknowledge that we are all sinners. We turn from the wrong that we have thought and said and done, and are mindful of all that we have failed to do. For the sake of Jesus, who died for us, forgive us all that is past and help us to live each day in the light of Christ our Lord. Amen. May God our Father forgive us our sins and bring us to the eternal joy of his kingdom where dust and ashes have no dominion. Amen. you should have uh, access to uh, somewhere about your person um, the notices for the coming week and I'd invite you to peruse those uh, thoughtfully Uh, something I've been particularly asked to underline is uh, the invitation for any of you who may feel able to from time to time either read from the Bible or lead prayers uh, during our services, then please consider whether you'd be interested in that. And there's a sign-up sheet in the meeting place um, at uh, at the back of the church. Uh, another thought that comes to my mind, although it's not on my list, is that on Tuesday evening there is a meeting of the church council. And these are always critical. They're dealing uh, under God with many important issues, Um, not only to do with things like the fabric of the church, but also the mission of the church too, and the worship of the church, and the outreach of the church. Um, And uh, so there's always an opportunity uh, these days uh, for prayer during the time of that meeting. And so... Therefore, on Tuesday evening, from 7.30 onwards, the Hind Chapel over here on your right will be open for prayer and access is via, through, is via the side door uh, just over there. But speaking of readers and prayers, we'll know how reading from the Bible as um, Liz pardon me, <laughs> uh, brings it to us. Thank you.
1: The reading this evening is from 1 John, chapter 5, verses 13 to 21, and can be found on page 1228 of the Church Bibles. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death, I am not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who is born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are children of God, and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. This is the word of the Lord.
0: And as I seek to open that scripture for us, uh, let's just bow our heads once more in prayer. Loving Father, we are your children. We count it as our greatest joy and privilege to be called such. And as our Father, you will give us only good things. And we pray now that you would give us good things from your word. And that we might receive them, these words, as your gift to us. To teach, if necessary, to rebuke. And to also encourage us as we walk with Jesus. Amen. I have um, a question for you. And I'd be interested to know... If I give you a choice of two, so it's not going to be very complicated, what you what your outlook is, almost your outlook on life, your outlook on your Christian faith. Do you see yourself as favouring doubt, or do you see yourself as more friendly towards certainty? Do you um, embrace the one or the other? Now, you may think, and I might agree with you, that's a very odd question, but it's actually a very live question. I hope that even asking the question starts to light up some light bulbs in your minds, like, well, doubt about what? (laughs) What? Certainty about what? And yet, if I'm not much mistaken, if we take the temperature um, or the blood pressure or something of the mood of our age, it is actually inclined to one or other of these two things. And I believe that very definitely is inclined towards the exaltation (laughs) of doubt. I believe that this age loves doubt more than it likes certainty. I don't know about you. I don't know if you've never thought about it before. But I'm persuaded that our age favours doubt over certainty. Now, I'd be inclined to blame that, if I was going to blame anybody or anything, on post-modernity. Except it goes back a lot longer than that. This general... Sympathy toward doubting things. So the poet Tennyson, who's getting pretty long in the tooth now, I understand, said very famously, there lives more faith in honest doubt, believe me, than in half the creeds. And I can see many people in his own day, and many more people in our own day, nodding sagely. Quite right, Alfred. My lord. Um, in the last century, the philosopher Bertrand Russell said, The trouble with the world is that the stupid are cocksure and the intelligent are full of doubt. He seems to be very sure of that. Quite well, Whether that makes him, I'm not sure. But again, there would be many people. Now, Tennyson uh, was not really a believer, and Bertrand Russell certainly wasn't a believer, he was an agnostic. So what about Christian thinkers and writers and teachers? What do they think about this whole business, about doubt and certainty? What does the mood, even in the Christian church, about this? Well, here's a quite well-known Christian writer called Brian McLaren, who urges us to drop any affair you may have with certainty, proof, argument, and replace it with dialogue, conversation, intrigue, Only last year, a book came out by another Christian writer called Peter Enns, entitled The Sin of Certainty. So you can see there's a big push, including within the Christian church, by influential and thoughtful Christian teachers to say Certainty is a nasty, ugly thing. What we like much better is a whole pile of doubt. Now, what are we going to make of this um, this adore, adoring attitude to doubt, both outside and inside the Christian Church? Actually, no. <laughs> I don't think it is complete nonsense. I think it's, I think I agree with people like Brian McLaren and Peter Enns and many others that as Christians we owe it to our Lord and to one another to be honest about the doubts that we do have from time to time and not to pretend that things are just wonderfully smooth and running along very nicely and with a great deal of certainty when they aren't. It's difficult in particular for Christians who are in public office, Christian ministers and pastors, to admit that they might have some doubts from time to time. They're running through a difficult period, a doubting period in their own lives. They have to sometimes pretend or feel they're expected to pretend. How much more with the rest of us? Wouldn't it be wise to be honest with one another and not pretend that things are okay when perhaps they aren't? And in any case, certainty can be a very ugly thing. If you ever come across a Christian who thinks that he, and they're usually men, knows everything, is <laughs> um, a pretty ugly uh, and arrogant point of view uh, to have. Um, I think that within a few weeks of becoming a Christian, as you're 19, I knew everything. But I'm not young enough to know to know everything now. I knew exactly how the world began. I knew exactly how the world would finish. I knew pretty much what what happened in between as well. Um, but um, as I say, I'm not young enough to know everything anymore. And uh, so, uh, and the Bible tells us about doubt as well. Um, There are, of the 66 books of the Bible, there are two and a bit that really go on and on, deeply and profoundly, about doubt. I wonder if you (laughs) get you to think for a second about what those two and a bit books might be. Well, I'll tell you the book of Job, the book of Ecclesiastes. Thank you. And got it. Well done. And go on then. Some of the Psalms. Some of the Psalms. Well done. okay, Yeah. Okay, so the Bible allows us to read about deep, prolonged, profound doubt in those but as I said the sixty six books in the Bible, and that is not the predominant note of the bible is to the Bible does not promote doubt if we just um, so i 'm getting to the point now with you where i 'm asking the question: is chronic doubt the kind of way we 've seen it? A placard as advertised earlier is such chronic doubt about doubt is good and certainty bad always such a good thing. And from the scriptural point of view, I think the answer has to be no. But before we go to scripture, uh, just uh, one note about this whole thing as it regards our society as a whole is a well-known fact that prescriptions for antidepressants have doubled over the past ten years. And there's probably many reasons for that, which I won't go into now. But one of the reasons may well be this, and I was interested in this comment from Marjorie Wallace, who represents the mental health charity SANE, who says, in relation to that statistic, it seems that more and more people are feeling unsafe and uncertain due to factors that include social and political change, the impact of social media, and fragmentation of relationships. Notice that phrase. They're feeling unsafe and uncertain. I'm convinced she's right. It's only part of the reason that's statistic, um, but I think that as far as it goes, she's dead right. We're leaving a great deal of personal and interpersonal instability, making for people, many people in our society and culture, feeling unsafe and uncertain. So scripture then, as we've noted already, talks about doubt. But it does not parade doubt as in its own way a good thing. After all, the first doubter in the Bible was a serpent who asked, did God really say? Another doubter was was Abraham, who knew that he was too old, and his wife Sarah was too old to bear children. So even though God had promised a son to them, he laughed and said, will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? He just laughed at God. He doubted. It was not a good thing, but a real thing. And it's good that we know about it. John the Baptist Saw his life and his ministry falling apart, thrown into prison. And from prison, he sends somebody to Jesus saying, Are you the one (laughs) that we've been expecting? Or should we be looking for somebody else? He doubted. He didn't know. Such a powerful, such a strong man of faith, John the Baptist, but he had his doubts. Then there were those two walking down the road to Emmaus from Jerusalem. They'd seen Jesus crucified. They'd heard that the tomb was empty. But they just couldn't bring themselves to, to even begin to believe that anything might have happened, really uh, supernatural might have happened. Somebody comes alongside them and starts talking about them, about just how forlorn they are and why that might be. And part of what they say to this stranger is, we had hoped, we had hoped that he would redeem Israel. And now, of course, our hopes are shattered. Well, of course, the stranger was the risen Jesus, and their hopes were certainly very quickly and drastically re- revived. But they doubted. And then there's doubting Thomas, the, pa- the patron saint of doubters who, when the other disciples had seen the risen Jesus, and he hadn't, he'd gone AWOL for a while, said, unless I see, unless I touch, unless I put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Doubting Thomas. So none of these doubts are parades as being a good thing, but they happened. And it's good that the Bible tells us they happened, because the Bible also gives us the other side of the coin. Now, I've been aiming for the longest sermon introduction in history. Do you think <laughs> I've achieved it? <laughs> because we now finally come to this evening's passage, which Liz, Liz read to us. Make sure you have, please have a Bible in front of you on page 1228. By the way, on long sermon introductions, I'm reminded of a Puritan uh, preacher of uh, whose member of his congregation, his name was John Howe, and a member of his congregation complained, Mr. Howe is so long laying the table that I despair of the meal, Few was referring to his introductions. Okay. Well, so we are in 1 John, the first letter of uh, John, chapter 5, verses 13 to 21. The last section in a series of messages, of talks on this wonderful letter. So as I um, proceed and, <laughs> and conclude... I'll be mopping up, attempting with John to mop up a few things. John, you know, is not Paul. Paul, quite a lot of the time, will pursue um, a, a an, an argument, a discussion, step by step. John flips around all over the place, keeps repeating himself, like old, really old people sometimes do. John is um, very old, and he's re. Got a few thoughts that really he's, he's boil all his thoughts, all his faith down to a few thoughts. That he keeps going on about, and uh, I can hear the children now, as they gather around Uncle John, complaining, "Why does Uncle John keep repeating himself like that?" And uh, you've perhaps heard preachers already say that um, uh, when John was in extreme old age, he'd be carried into his church at Ephesus, just repeating, uh, again and again. Dear children, love one another. Dear children, love one another. There's something about a Christian getting really old that boils it down to the basic essentials of what really matters. And that's what's going on with John. But he keeps going back and mentioning things that he's mentioned before, perhaps in a slightly different way. So I'll be doing the same. I'll try and follow John as I just uh, proceed here. So it seems to me that in our passage... John is answering, as in fact, Scripture as a whole ans- uh, answers, but John answers this question. What are we to make of the question about doubt and certainty? Because in this one quite short passage, John is saying these things over and over again. That you may know. The confidence we have. We know, we know, we know, we know, we know. John is asserting John is encouraging confidence. And for a very good reason, he was writing to Christians who lacked confidence. There were Christians, we think, at Ephesus, and there had been a group of people who had been a part of that fellowship, who had been teaching false doctrine, doing strange things, being quite disruptive, but they were strong personalities, they had persuasive arguments, and then they finally left fellowship, leaving these remaining Christians thinking, well, maybe after all, they're right, and we've got it wrong. Maybe our faith is is, is, is just, just all wrong. And John is saying, look, no. You know these things. You've not got it wrong. You are truly children of God, and so on. So John is instilling confidence for that very good reason. And do we need John to instill confidence in us this evening? Are there not threats to the Christian faith? No, I don't just mean dwindling congregations in many parts of the Western world. I mean the impact on the church, the blow-by-blow blow impact on the church of scandals, of which, which have been in the news just in the last day or two, which enables the world to say, there, I told you so. The Christians are no better than the rest of us. In fact, they're much worse because they're hypocrites as well as everything else. Do you feel the impact... Of that, I do. And John wants to say to us, as he said to his readers, yes, but you can know, you can be certain, you can have confidence. What in? (laughs) Well, let me pick three things out of our passage. Confidence in three things. Three things that we can know. First of all, we can know, says John, that we have eternal life. Let's just be careful quickly with this expression, eternal life. Eternal life is not simply life that never ends. That could be murder, couldn't it? (laughs) Simply life stretched out to infinity. Eternal life is a quality and not merely a quantity of life. Eternal life is the life of the world to come, God's new heavens, and the new earth, begun now. In fact, it began when Jesus rose from the dead. So let's just be clear about that. It's a quality, not simply a quantity of life. And I just want to mention to you quickly, because preachers have, uh, if you've been here previous Sunday evenings, have mentioned these things already. But John bases that assurance on three things he's already covered earlier in his letter. The Trinity has been at work in securing for you and for me this eternal life. Atonement by the Son. Adoption by the Father. Adoption into his family. So you're treated as honoured children of God with all the privileges and indeed the responsibilities that that entails. And anointing from the Holy Spirit, whereby God lives in you by his Spirit. The eternal life is in you. By the Spirit. So we know that we have eternal life. And of course, it's important to know that, that, you, that you have received this gift. You can't really enjoy a gift until you know you have received it. Has that money been transferred into my bank balance, my bank account yet? Until it has, I can't use it. I can't enjoy it. I can't spend it. I can't give it away. I need to know that it's arrived that I have it, and God wants uh, you to know. John wants you to know. In fact, this is a whole aim of his, um, of his epistle. Do you see John saying, do you read John saying, I've written these things so that you know, and these things is referring to the entire epistle. Just as towards the end of his gospel, he said, I've written that so that you may believe. So now he says at the end of his, his epistle, I'm writing this, so that you know that you believe, so you know you have eternal life. First thing then, we know that we have eternal life. But there's an if attached, providing we apply the tests of faith. Again, I don't want to try and do these in detail. They've been covered if you, uh, by previous preachers on previous Sunday evenings, if you've been here in church for those. But there's a moral test. There's a relational test. And a doctrinal test. A moral test. If we do what is right, if we obey God's commandments, then we can have confidence that we are his children and we do have his life. There's the relational test. We know that we're born of God if we love one another. Not perfectly, but really. And we know that we have God's eternal life. If we believe not only in Jesus, but that Jesus is the Son of God. That Jesus is God incarnate, that Jesus is God, come in human form, in human flesh. Second assurance, we know that our prayers are answered, are are heard and indeed answered in verses 14 to 16. But isn't that an an astonishing claim? What an outrageous thing for any Christian to say to another Christian. We know that God hears and answers our prayers. Oh, it's a very pious thing to say, but what does it mean to believe that in the rough and tumble of our Christian lives? I'm reminded of uh, something that somebody mentioned to Sarah, my wife, only very recently, when that person said, yeah, it's much easier to preach this stuff (laughs) than to live through it. And I want to acknowledge that and say how true that is. But God's word says... that he he hears and answers our prayers. So is our problem sometimes that we simply don't have enough confidence in prayer to ask in the first place. But you may also feel you've been asking and asking and asking and not heard or seen any response. So we need to cling on to this promise and consider two ifs. That attach to it. One is a negative one, and the other is a positive one. The first being covered already by John early in his epistle concerning the if of prayer, that God will hear and answer our prayers if. Chapter 3 and verse 21. If you want to check some of these up, then just glance at them. They're only just, just, only just over the page. God hears us. If our hearts Do not condemn us. Surely we need to take this very seriously. um, That even as Christians, we can be in a state of disobedience before God. It's not going to be permanent, but it is a settled state of disobedience for God. Where we have no right to expect that God hears and answers our prayers. There's a psalm, I think it's Psalm 66, that says... If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, God would not have listened. So I'd have confidence in answered prayer. Do we need to do what a previous generation of Christians used to urge one another to do, which is to keep short accounts with God and be read not only in church but on a daily basis to come clean before God and seek his cleansing and make sure that sin, disobedience, rebellion hasn't actually got in the way of that familial, that father son, that father child relationship between us and our God. Do we need some sorting out that we need to do? Now, the other thing is, of course, the positive test of answered prayer or condition is if we ask according to his will. How do we know what God's will is? Three S's. Three S's to know what God's will is. Scripture need to know and understand Scripture, not just promises. You know the promise box uh, approach to Scripture, but knowing the storyline of God's dealing with, with His people, as set out in Scripture. So Scripture is the first first S. The Spirit is the second S. And in what ways are we as Christians and the Church listening to God? the Holy Spirit speak to us and revealing God's truth uh, in us, which will never contradict Scripture. And the third S is circumstances. Well, I know I can't, I never could spell. Um, That is to say that we, and especially wise, perhaps older Christians, just looking at life and circumstances and applying Christian wisdom and prudence and sort of saying, it seems to me that it would be wise to do this or not wise to do that. So three S's to knowing God's will, Scripture, Spirit, and circumstances. The third assurance is we know that we will be kept safe. It's one thing to know that we have received eternal life, but another thing to know that God will keep us safe right until the end. Verses 18 to 20. The one who was born of God, that's Jesus, keeps him safe. Once again, there's an if to this. Um, I just ought to pause and say there's a very thorny phrase or two in here that you may have noticed as Liz read read it to us, or you may have been aware of it already. Something to do with praying for, praying about the sin which doesn't lead to death, and this praying for the sin and not praying for the sin that does lead to. Did you, did you notice that, or were you aware of that even before that was read out to you? I'm not going to talk about that now. <laughs> uh, but if you're interested, if that bothers you or interests you, have a natter um, at the end of the service. But I, I, I want to leave that to one side. Now I'll say something quickly about it. I believe. Uh, I think that praying for the sin that doesn't lead to death is praying for a a fellow believer. Because fellow believers, John says, do not practice sin. They do not continue in sin. They lapse into sin from time to time, but it's not their nature to sin. So pray for forgiveness for that sin. Whereas not praying for the sin that, that does lead to death would be like praying for the forgiveness of something done wrong by somebody who's not a believer but in that case the person is living a life of sin a life of rebellion so it'd be pointless to pray for forgiveness for anything in particular when what you need to be praying for is for that person's entire life to turn around well having told you i wouldn't (laughs) try and explain that i just have but hey bonus Um, But if you'd like to pursue that, because some people get worried about this kind of thing and, you know, the the sin against the Holy Spirit and this kind of thing. And I don't want you to uh, to be worried about that. So if it does worry you, then let's have a natter about it at the end of the service. Anyway, back to being protected, guarded by God, being kept by God. If, if, if. The if is not quite so obvious here, but there is an if. Now, let me put it this way if supposing the last four words of this epistle had somehow gone missing, there was just three dots, and there was no manuscript that told us what the last four words of this epistle were. Epistle, all we got was in verse, excuse me, verse 21 was, dear children, dot, dot, dot. What would do you have expected? Knowing this epistle as you do, what would you have expected John to say? Dear children, go on. Love one another. Yes, I think we would have expected that, knowing John as we do. Because that's what he's been banging on about almost more than anything else. Um, dear children, love one another. So how very odd and unexpected. He doesn't do that at all. He goes, it's a completely different place. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Very odd way of finishing uh, this. And this may well be the very last portion of the Bible to have been written not sure about that, but it might have been. How strange, how odd, how unexpected for the very last part of the Bible to be, ever to be written and come down to us, says, keep yourselves from idols. Well, think about it for a moment. I'm not, I'm not expecting or sus, uh, suspecting that when you go home, you'll go straight to the corner of your sitting room and there will be a bit of stone or a wood and this kind of thing and you'll do, you know, you'll bound down and this kind of thing. I'm not thinking about that kind of idolatry. I'm not sure that John was. Even though Ephesus, where we believe that he ministered this time, was full of that kind of idolatry. I think that John may have been um, um, thinking more widely than that. What might he be thinking about? And what might, might we need to think about when we take these words from John? Keep yourselves from idols. Well, in John's age and in our own age are there not not material idols of wood and stone but those kinds of idols? Is there not a deep affection and worship and idolization of much that is to do with money, much that is to do with sex and much that is to do with power? Each of which in its own place is not wicked or evil, but is so apt to be given a wrong place and to become an idol. So, yes, we do have modern idols of that kind and others too, because really an idol is anything that captures our affection and our worship before God. Anything that we put before God, be it those things Our children, our parents, our work, our pets, our grandchildren, our husbands, our wives, our boyfriends, our girlfriends, our studying, our books, our hobbies and interests. Anything that we put before God is an idol to us. So we might well pray with the old hymn writer, William Cowper. The dearest idol I have known, whate'er that idol be, help me to tear it from, my, from thy throne and worship only thee. Yes, brothers and sisters, doubt happens, and let's not deny it or pretend that it doesn't. But when doubt happens, and it may be happening in your life right now, let it drive us back to our Heavenly Father who has bestowed on us the gift of eternal life, who does hear and who does answer our prayers and who has pledged to keep us safe right until the end. And let us resolve to respond to him in love, trust, and gratitude, renewing the pledge that we once made, maybe weeks, maybe months, maybe many years ago, that pledge we made to put him first in everything that we are and in all that we do. Let us pray. Father God, would you give us the right kind of doubt, the right kind of self-doubt, not to trust too much in ourselves or the things of this world, but to trust and hope in you. And may we enjoy the right kind of certainty, knowledge of eternal life, knowledge of answered prayer, knowledge that we have been kept safe. And may all that we do by way of response be one of utter gratitude that we love and serve you not because we have to, but because we want to.